Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. Hi, I'm Jeremy Gipton, Teacher Programs Manager with TeachingAmericanHistory.org, and I'm here with Professor David Krugler of the University of Wisconsin-Platteville, who's going to talk with us about his work as the volume editor for our Core American Documents Collection volume on the Cold War. For those of you who have, are joining us kind of midstream, partway through this, uh, this series, we're doing a single interview podcast with each of the editors for all the volumes in our Core American Documents Collection. Each of these volumes includes a set of documents, 25 to 30 documents or so, a summary of the topic with specific document citations, a thematic table of contents in the back of the book, scholar-written summaries, discussion questions. Essentially, each volume is a toolkit to enable you as a history or government teacher to replace traditional textbook materials with primary source documents for either a thematic unit of study, a chronological unit of study, a specific event in time. And so we're going to sit down and talk with the editors for each of these volumes to kind of get an inside view of how they went about building these collections, uh, salient points that they think you should pay attention to, and just some other ideas to kind of breathe some life into these, uh, these volumes as they come out. So uh, before we get into the specifics of this volume and the Cold War in general, I'd like to give uh, David a little bit of time to introduce himself. David, why don't you give us a little bit of your background, um, your education, your area of specialization, and, and what you do now. Thanks, Jeremy. Sure. Um, my name is David Krugler, and I'm a professor of history. I've been doing that for just over 20 years after finishing up my Ph.D. in U.S. history at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. My specialty is 20th century U.S. history, and I have interests in racial conflict after the First World War, uh, nuclear war and preparations for it, and Cold War propaganda. Uh, and it's these last two topics that led uh, me to put together this collection for the Ashbrook Center uh, and for high school teachers and students uh, all over the country. Okay. So diving right into the, the collection, or rather not so much the collection, but the topic that it, it focuses on, um, why would someone, and maybe this sounds silly to an American history or a world history or a government teacher, why study the Cold War in the first place? What would be your elevator pitch to someone who says, ah, you don't need to do that, it's all in the past? Why study the Cold War? My elevator pitch is this. What, what does a man on the moon have in common with high school teachers being required to take loyalty oaths before they can step in the classroom? And the answer is the Cold War. The Cold War led to the U.S.'s space program and intense competition with the Soviet Union to put human beings into space and bring them back safely, land some of them on the moon. At the same time, it's the Cold War that led many states, such as California, to require public school teachers to take loyalty oaths. Uh, so we have to ask ourselves, what, what sort of event would bring both of these requirements uh, or campaigns, these efforts together? And it's, it's the Cold War. It was the 50-year competition, rivalry, near-warlike uh, state between the Soviet Union and the United States and its allies. That's why we should study the Cold War. And, and I would add to it uh, the fact I just mentioned. We're talking about an event that lasted half a century. Uh, that requires our attention just on that basis alone. I think it's interesting, too, for government teachers to look at, you know, you, you 
you bring up the fact that it's 50 years. How many presidential administrations is that? How many different major uh, policy shifts and, and you know, you know, congressional debates and laws and Supreme Court cases took place during that time that had to do with this? So that's that, but that's an interesting, that's an interesting way to drive it home. I, I like that. Uh, now, focusing the Cold War on, on teachingamericanhistory.org's angle, our angle, that being primary documents as much as possible uh, as, as teaching resources, how specifically is the study of the Cold War, how do you think the study of the Cold War is enhanced or otherwise improved by the use of documents in place of more traditional secondary resources? I think as with just about every other topic you can think of, using the documents allows the principles, the people involved in making decisions and people affected by decisions and actions to speak directly to us. And if we choose our documents carefully, uh, we spend some time with them, we can understand the complexity of the issue. Uh, and with the Cold War, which uh, impacts life in the United States in so many ways and affects the relations of the United States with uh, just about every other country in the world, uh, we've got a, a diversity of voices that need to come through uh, on that front. Uh, and, and it's fun, too, to see the Cold War talked about in different ways depending on the audience. So when we look at... Uh, a primary source involving a public presidential address, and there are several of them in this collection. That's different from a president speaking privately to his national security advisor, uh, and we have an example of that in the collection as well. And so I think teachers and their students will find it fascinating to compare the public rhetoric of presidents who know they're speaking to not just the American people but the world, but then hearing that same president talk about uh, an issue in private with his national security advisor. Lots of contrasts. Can you give us an example of one of those comparisons that someone would find in this collection? Sure. So when we get to the late Cold War and uh, the end of the Vietnam War, we have a document uh, from 1969, late 1969, in which uh, President Richard Nixon addresses the country on what he's doing to end the war in Vietnam. And, and we have another public address from Nixon four years later when he explains the uh, terms of peace finally reached with uh, North Vietnam. In that same section of the collection, we have Nixon speaking privately with Henry Kissinger about the situation in Chile and the United States' unhappiness, the Nixon administration's unhappiness with the outcome of the election in Chile uh, and what should be done uh, about it. You see a really sharp contrast in the way the president talks to Henry Kissinger's national security advisor uh, about that issue. He's, he's much blunter. Uh, he speaks much more openly. Uh, and you get a sense that um, they're planning something that, that is not going to be announced publicly to the American people or the world. Interesting. How many documents did you decide to put into this collection? When we started out, the, the working number was 25, and I, I, I quickly realized that we would need much more than 25, uh, uh, as many as 50. Uh, and so we bounced around in the 40s up to 50 uh, and finally settled on, on 45 documents. So it's lengthier than some of the other collections in this series, um, for example, the one on religion in American history and politics has just 25. But uh, we're at about the same length because with the Cold War, and especially with diplomatic records, um, a lot of them are pretty brief. So it's, it's not a lengthy volume. Um, we've, we've got a lot of brevity, and we make up for that with um, variety then. 
Okay. How did you go about selecting these documents? Did you have um, did you have some kind of a, a checklist or a lens or a, was there a kind of a meta narrative that you wanted to tell and you selected documents to meet that? How did you go about putting this collection together? I started by uh, coming up with a list of the usual suspects. As, as someone who's been teaching the Cold War for 20 plus years, um, there are documents I use all the time and, and that are present in just about every reader. So the long telegram from George Kennan, which begins the collection, the Truman Doctrine, a speech by President Truman in March of 1947. I knew they would go into the collection. Um, but I didn't want it to be a replication or a copy of what's out there. So once I had the list of usual suspects, I tried to condense it as much as possible. And then I branched out into other areas. I thought about issues that don't get a lot of attention. Uh, so let me give you a specific example. As someone who's studied Cold War propaganda, I've always been fascinated by the ways in which the U.S. government, particularly the State Department, struggled to deal with the Soviet Union's criticism of the United States for the second-class uh, treatment of African Americans um, during the early Cold War. And so I wanted to include in the collection a document that would let teachers and students know how the government tried to be truthful uh, about the lack of basic rights for millions of citizens on the basis of, of race, but also what the U.S. government was trying to do about it. Uh, and so one of the documents included is guidance to the Voice of America, which was the U.S.'s international radio broadcasting uh, network on, on shortwave radio, uh, guidance on, on how to report racial conflict and racial problems in the United States and the, and the lack of civil rights for, for many Americans. That's something that doesn't often appear uh, in uh, the traditional list of Cold War documents. And there were many other themes I wanted to, to develop along those lines as well. Um, out of the, the total number of documents, you said, you know, you, you start off with a, a foundation of the usual suspects, and then you added these others to meet these other perspective-based needs that, that you established. W what would you say the balance is, the ratio of usual suspects to things that m stuff, or documents probably a lot of people have never heard of but are useful? I think about 50-50. I think uh, 20 to 25 documents are, are ones you won't find elsewhere. And then 20 to 25, you know, somewhere in that range, um, are pretty commonly available. What do you think, now, I, this is, uh, this is a, a kind of a false question, I admit that, um, but I still think it's worth asking just for the sake of interest. Out of all the documents, if you were forced to pick one and say, this is the most important document for studying the Cold War in an American history or an American government class, in an American middle or high school class, how's that, history class? Sure. What would you say is the single most important document in this collection and, and why? Well, I would say uh, President Truman's speech in March of 1947, which is commonly known as the Truman Doctrine speech, it is the single most important um, source in the collection. Uh, if teachers need to begin with just one source and end with one source, and of course we hope they don't, I would say that's the one you need to highlight. That needs to get your attention. It's in that speech that Truman lays out a blueprint for the Cold War, and he does so in ways that bring in ideology and define very nicely and vividly for students who have no idea what the Cold War is. They get a definition of what the difference between the United States is and the Soviet Union and their respective allies. So you have this contrast where Truman is talking about there are basically two ways of life in the world. One is based on, on freedom, 
uh, and security. Uh, the other is based upon people living in terror, uh, people living in a police state, not having freedom of thought. So it's a nice way to have the ideological contours of the Cold War defined. And the document's also important because it's a specific request. Truman is saying, look, we need to give Greece and Turkey hundreds of millions of dollars. They can't protect themselves. I think for students who are growing up and as they become aware of the world, they, they take it for granted that the United States is a global leader and, and does all these things, but they may, they may not. They probably don't know why. Um, and the origins of that uh, commitment uh, that's still going on today can be traced back to that document. Interesting. I think it's interesting, too, the point that you alluded to uh, at the beginning of your, your answer is that, you know, teaching students about the Cold War today is teaching students who were born long after it ended. Right. Um, and it was, I, re, I mean, I remember when I was teaching years ago how interesting it was to realize that these were students who did, the, the, the late Cold War, the 1980s, were, were my life was high school and college. And so Reagan and Reykjavik and the Berlin Wall coming down in November of 89, that was all my living memory, my experience. And to them, it was, it was as remote as Gettysburg or, you know, or nearly as remote. And, and it's, so it's a strange thing that you, you, we're not teaching students now about a thing that is ongoing. We're teaching them about a thing that has ripples to today, but in terms of it being a discrete a thing in our history we would say is over and that's yes. that's that's a fascinating piece I, I think that's really that and so using the Truman Doctrine to really lay out how it was defined and what it meant and what was at stake from the from the get-go I think that's that's really that's interesting and I think with with the way the collection ends up when we get to the late 80s um, and the final document is a conversation between Helmut Kohl the, the Chancellor of West Germany, uh, which was not yet unified, and then President George H.W. Bush, you hear echoes of the Truman Doctrine in what Bush and Cole are talking about in terms of uh, guiding Poland uh, to a transformation from communism to capitalism and democracy and, and what the fall of the Berlin Wall means. Uh, so there's 42, uh, 52, 42 years difference between that speech and that conversation. And that conversation itself is just been recently declassified so that's one of the, the documents you don't often see in collections uh, which is why we included it that helps you see the whole of the cold war and also its end as a discrete event uh, and helps people who were born well after it uh, see why it lasted so long and make sense of it that's interesting make sense of it exactly so you consider the truman doctrine to be the most the single most important document of all the documents that you decided to include in this collection, which do you personally consider most remarkable, most uh, noteworthy, has something, maybe maybe the biggest surprise in it, something that you wouldn't want teachers to miss? Well, I think one document I would point people's attention to is from the Federal Civil Defense Administration, and the subject for the document, for the source, is Organized Evacuation of Civilian Populations in civil defense, and it provides some policy guidelines for states on how populations might be moved from urban centers in the case of a war with the Soviet Union, which at this point in the early 1950s would have involved nuclear weapons. Now, we know the Cold War ended a long time ago, and, and we all know, even if we're not directly familiar with how they work, that nuclear weapons still exist, but how many of us today have ever given thought 
about evacuation if things got very bad between the United States and a nuclear power today. This is something that preoccupied lots and lots of government officials and people during the Cold War. And I think though the advice given on organized evacuation of civilian populations in civil defense in the early 1950s doesn't have a lot of uh, applicability today, the fact that it was being planned in the early 50s is very important to know. And this is something that, that doesn't often appear in, in Cold War uh, collections of uh, documents. So that's something I would like teachers to take a look at. And it's really short, too. Interesting. Interesting. During the creation of this collection, did you personally, because I've heard this from some of the other editors, that this one was a far more enjoyable and interesting process than they had, they had expected, uh, the creation of, the, of these collections. But did you personally experience any kind of intellectual uh, aha moments? Or, or were there any surprises as you put this collection together? I, you know, I didn't have any epiphanies, unfortunately. I, I kind of wish I, I, I had. Um, but I did, I did have one surprise. Um, so on my usual suspects list uh, was uh, Joe McCarthy's speech at Wheeling, West Virginia in early 1950. And, and this document, this speech, has been um, anthologized over and over and over. And I'm pretty familiar with it because it was, it was a, um, a topic within uh, my dissertation research. And so I thought it wouldn't be hard to obtain a, a reliable copy of that speech. Now, I went into it knowing that uh, McCarthy's a recording of the speech had been erased, um, but that there was a, a transcript available of, of, what he, of his prepared remarks. And I thought it wouldn't be difficult to find uh, a copy of that, including perhaps in my own research files. And that took hours and hours to nail down. A, a reliable, accurate uh, copy uh, or best copy uh, of what McCarthy uh, said. So I was really surprised. I thought that would be the easiest um, document to obtain accurately and, and reliably, and it turned out to be one of the toughest. It's interesting because I know that we've gone to great lengths to make sure that the documents and the excerpts of the documents that we've included in the collections are the the most reliable and, and broadly accepted as reliable copies of the documents. So that's, that's fascinating. I think a lot of these things we, we kind of take for granted. Well, of course there's a record of it. I, I thought I could probably get reliable, verifiable documents almost exclusively uh, on the internet, but I ended up obtaining probably close to half of the documents uh, from a very old-fashioned method. I, 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 I tromped over to the library and I checked out volumes of the, the, the public papers of the president's um, and photocopied the speeches as they had been published in these collections going back to, to Truman and, and then painstakingly checked the text against uh, online versions. And I, you know, I guess this was a second surprise for me. I, I um, found a lot of discrepancies between online versions that I thought were 100% accurate uh, and um, earlier print sources. Interesting. So, are you are you saying that it is perhaps it is possible that just because it's online, it is not perfectly reliable? I am saying that. I am saying let's not close our libraries yet. Oh, uh, yet. Or, How about, or remove all the books from them. There we go. Well, is there anything else you would want to add that you would want teachers to know if someone's considering? Oh, should I should I download a copy of this? Should I get a copy of this? Should I should I take a chance on this um, with my students? Is there anything else you would want someone to know? 
in considering this volume that you've put together for us? Yes, I'd, I'd, I'd love for them to take a look at it and, and just browse through and find a document that catches their fancy. If, if they've been teaching the Truman Doctrine ever since they uh, started teaching, um, skip it and, and find something you're not familiar with. Um, give it a chance and then go to the appendix. We prepared thematic and comparative questions for the collection. So if you find a document that you're not familiar with and you think the students will really connect to, you can use the appendix um, to pose questions about the document itself to the students, but also to other documents. So if you if you find this document that really clicks with you, for instance, the civil defense one or the, the guidance for the voice of America on race relations, we have study questions that will point you to other related documents in the collection. And you can put together a lesson plan with, with two or three brief documents um, and do this in a, in a variety of ways. I mean, since the Cold War covers so much, if you want to emphasize uh, the economics of it, that's available. Um, if you want to do the social side, you can find the documents and questions that, that establish those connections for you. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Well, David, I really appreciate your time today, and I really appreciate the, uh, the work that you've put into this volume. I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on, on both a digital and a real copy of it. Uh, teachers, you can look at a list of all the volumes we are in the process of, of uh, writing. If you go to tah.org slash core American documents, tah.org slash core American documents, that's all together, all lowercase, you can see a full list of all the volumes that we have planned. Uh, you, there is also a list of linked or links to document or volumes that we have finished. And, the, and if you're listening to this, the Cold War volume will be available. All of the volumes uh, that are available now are available through um, iTunes as Apple eBooks. They are available from Amazon on a Kindle for 99 cents. The eBooks are free. Or also directly from teachingamericanhistory.org as PDFs. The PDF, by the way, is the file that we use to fuel print-on-demand through Amazon. The copies, I believe, are $10 a piece. And so if you decide to get a physical copy of a book and of a volume and you use the PDF with your students, they're paginated in the exact same way. It is the exact same book. One is just digital and one is physical. The digital versions, the free versions, you are free to distribute those to your students, post them on class websites, take them apart and print from them, anything you would like. Um, we, just, we would just love to think that documents are getting in the hands of students and that they're reading them. That's, that is our hope. Additionally, on that page, tah.org slash core American documents, there is a link where you can sign up for automatic email notifications of every time we publish a new volume, you get an email with a link to those various digital versions of the volume so that you can download a copy right away. And as of the publication of the Cold War, we have uh, four other volumes that are already finished, and the links to those, again, are on the site. Finally, if you're listening to this podcast through iTunes, if you'd take the time to give us a five-star rating and some other feedback on iTunes, that would help us show up in people's search results and would uh, help us spread the word about our content, our resources, and our programs. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs, at TAH.org webinars, 
or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.